welcome to Queer Discourse with Lou Barrett. It's me, Lou Barrett. (laughs) We have not spoken in over a year. And hi, (laughs) today is New Year's Eve 2021. And I'm excited that the podcast Queer Discourse is returning in the new year. I thought I would just start by giving a few updates. Um, The last time we talked, I was living in New Orleans. Now I'm living in Chicago. And I have signed um, Purple Palm Press's first four authors, which is huge. And the first of which is book will be out this year or well, not this year, this year as in tomorrow's year, 2022. (laughs) Um, So that is really, really cool. I started recording this when my roommates were gone and now they're not. And so now I feel (laughs) funnier doing this, but that is just, you know, that's just how it works. Sometimes, sometimes you have roommates. One more thing I want to say before getting into the show is that I would love for you to get involved in the show. (laughs) So I want to connect to readers, you readers, you know, who may be interested in what Purple Palm publishes and are also just like interested in queer lit and queer discourse. So I would love uh, to have you on the show. If there's a book you love that's, you know, by a queer author and you dig the show and would want to be a guest, um, there is a Google form on my Instagram. My Instagram is at Lou the Barrett. That will also be in the show notes. And the Google form is in my link tree. I am not at all promising that everyone who (laughs) uh, submits the Google form is guaranteed a spot on the show, Um, but I would love to hear more about you and what um, book interests you have. And I would love to incorporate some listeners and some um, just readers, you know, onto the show who I don't know. And another change in this season is that um, starting with this episode, we are talking to authors as well. So the first season was all mostly friends of mine, fellow readers talking about a different book. And then now I'm going to be incorporating both readers and authors So that is very exciting. So today's episode, I am talking to Lucy Fielding, who is the author of Transsex, Clinical Approaches to Transsexualities and Erotic Embodiments. She was a joy to have on the show. (laughs) Um, I really appreciated how supportive she was and how much they were excited to talk about their book. Um... It's really cool. It's really cool. And their book is incredible. I'm going to take a moment to read their bio on the back. So Lucy Fielding, using she, they pronouns, is a sexuality educator and resident in counseling in Charlottesville, Virginia. They have an MA in counseling psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute, as well as a PhD in French pretty cool, (laughs) from Northwestern University. Their background in literature attunes them to ways narrative and image impact our embodied sexualities. Their book is really cool, really cool. (laughs) Um, So while it was written marketed toward therapists who work with trans clients or may work with trans clients, this is really not a book just for therapists. Like I am not a therapist. (laughs) Uh, I'm a person who has sex. And I loved the book. I loved the book. And it 
uh, it's it's so interesting the ways that the um, things she gets into in the book are showing up in my own personal um, sexual explorations and the ways that I'm showing up to sexual experiences. So I like really, really, really recommend reading this. And I think the conversation we had was really fruitful. Uh, We got into a lot of things in a short period of time. And I was so grateful to her because I was late I was late because I work in with a lot of different time zones and I screwed up my time zone <laughs> stuff and I was late and I appreciated her, um, you know, accepting that and forgiving me. And we had a great conversation uh, and I'm really excited for you to listen to it. I want to make one correction about something I said, which was at some point in the show, I said that I've only dated people who are gender non-conforming, which in a way is true, but it's not true. I dated a cis man in college who was flamboyant and a lot of people thought was gay. And in that way, you could say, maybe you could say gender nonconforming, but I would say not the case. Um, But for the most part, I have dated butches, studs, trans men, and all, you know, all of, most part, the people I've dated are gender non-conforming, but I, I listened to a podcast by two journalists who love to put those corrections at the top. And I, uh, really appreciate journalism. And I found myself listening back to the episode and saying, eh, I got to correct that. So there you go. Um, you can learn more about Lucy Fielding and follow her on Instagram at Lucy Fielding, her name. And that will also be in the show notes. Her book's publisher is Rutledge. This is a podcast by a publisher, so we always like to mention the publisher here. Um, So you can get her book on www.rutledge.com. You can also get the book at onemorepagebooks.com. That is a local Virginia bookstore, and seeing as Lucy is from Virginia, I thought it would be cool to um, include a local Virginia store as well. That store will be in the show notes. And if you're like, okay, okay, but I want one more place, (laughs) one more place that I can get this book, you can go to bookshop.org slash shop slash Purple Palm Press, which is our bookshop page. Um, And you support a local bookstore by doing that as well as us. So everyone's happy. The last thing before we get into the show after this very long coming back to you introduction, um, there is a giveaway for a copy of Transsex. So in order to do this, you can go to my Instagram, Lou the Barrett. There will be a post with Transsex and you'll need to follow me and then share that post to your story and comment in the comments, put uh, tag a friend. So the idea here is that it will help raise more awareness about the show. It'll help get me some more followers and (laughs) will help you hopefully get a free book. I'm going to announce the winners the first week of February. All the information will be on Instagram, but this will be going on the last week of January. You'll have a week to do this, and then I will announce the winner in February, and I will personally mail the book to you. (laughs) All right, so without further ado, please enjoy Queer Discourse with Lou Barrett and my interview with Lucy Fielding. start by you introducing yourself and saying a little bit about who you are. Sure. 
Um, my name is Lucy Fielding, and I am a um, queer, non-binary, trans femme. Femme is both my queer identity and my gender identity. I am polyamorous. I'm kinky. I'm white. I'm visibly able-bodied, neurodivergent, Jewish, 43 years old. Um, and um, I am a therapist um, practicing in Charlottesville, Virginia, and, um, and I'm also a sex educator and the author of Transsex Clinical Approaches to Transsexualities and Erotic Embodiments, which came out in May 2021. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I'm so excited to have you. You're actually the first author I'm talking to on the podcast. Did I tell oh. you that? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the format of the first season was me talking with mostly friends or queer people in my community about different queer books, like books by queer authors. But it was like yeah. us discussing how we, you know, interpreted and related the book. But this is cool because I get to talk to the source herself about the book <laughs> yeah that's so cool well I love the um the Lou Sullivan episode thank um, you that was that was really awesome yeah that's one of my favorites they're all my favorite I guess <laughs> <laughs> well so okay I'm gonna I'm gonna flip to kind of like the beginning of the book one sure. of the, I think the first thing I wanted to talk about was the idea of desirability and desirability. Could yeah. you ex describe for the audience what that is? So this um, is a concept that I, I'm talking about just to give a little bit of context for these concepts. I'm talking about the fact that trans bodies, non-binary bodies, um, gender expansive bodies are our bodies, much like in in some ways, um, uh, disabled bodies or elder bodies, that are not seen as as erotic beings, as having the capacity of being erotic beings. Um, so they're they become unimaginable bodies in a sense, and so we see this in. Um, in these two facets, desirability and desirability. So first, desirability. This is, this very much comes out of the uh, politics of desirability that femmes like Hunter Shackelford, folks like Caleb Luna, Adrian Murray Brown, Erica Hart, um, you know, all talking about how our desire our attraction is not some like idiosyncratic subjective thing. I like who I like. It's instead um, very much wrapped in the cultures in which we move in terms of yeah, our desire is conditioned. So um, who we find attractive, who we find, who we invest with the capacity to be an object of desire. So somebody that, that we find desirable is so much about the cultures in which we move. We see this in various, um, in various realms like colorism in, um, in um, BIPOC communities in the sense of like, 
the ways that um, lighter skin tones because settler colonialism, because white, uh, white supremacy privileges folks with lighter skin versus darker skin, more melanated mm -hmm. skin. Um, and so trans folks, um, you know, um, there's a special kind of way that we are simultaneously fetishized, objectified, um, and kind of like the, the object of a cis gaze, while at the same time, completely desexualized. So a, an example of this is like, you know, great trans representation, like in, uh, in terms of visibility, in terms of like, um, the, uh, the show Supergirl, the character of Nia Nall, who is mm -hmm. the first kind of like trans superhero on television. And it's wonderful. Um, Nicole Maines is fabulous in that role and, and the character is badass. And yet as a trans character, like uh, the shows on the the Arrowverse, the the um, the super queerdos on many of those shows, like uh, Batwoman, for example, or even Supergirl itself, you know, they have these rich queer relationships that are sometimes very steamy, and you know, and they get great sex scenes, you know, whereas like Neonal is completely you know, seen as a romantic prospect, which is mm -hmm. wonderful, but is completely desexualized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And existing on the same show where a lesbian character is very sexualized mm -hmm. um, in a particular way. Um, so that's desirability. And we see this in like dating while trans, for example, um, phenomenon when, you know, when the moment a trans person discloses or is, is outed as trans when on like dating apps with, with cis folks, um, that the mere disclosure of one's trans identity is, is met with a like, no, no longer attracted. You know, mm -hmm. it's like you were attracted when you matched, when we matched. Mm -hmm. And the moment that what's changed, that what's changed is, is the disclosure. Mm -hmm. So that's desirability. Desire-ability, so desire-ability, um, is a move where to not just look at how, who is desirable, but um, who is an object of desire, but who can be, who has the capacity of being a desiring subject? Who can desire? Who is an erotic being? And here, trans and non-binary folks, um, a lot of uh, persons of color, a lot of um, disabled folks, um, elder bodies, fat bodies, are often like kind of, again, um, not seen as like, oh, you're not somebody who can even engage in mm -hmm. play or eroticism. And, um, and so, and that kind of plays out in the ways that, I mean, both in the world of dating, but also, um, to my observation in the ways that sex research is done. 
Mm -hmm. um, or the ways that sex education texts for the most part are written. Um, I hope that's changing, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, most of the major wonderful texts in sex education start with this apology often um, that says like, well, I'm really talking about cis women here um, and really cishet women. And I'm not able to talk about trans women because the research base isn't there. Why is the research base not there? Right, right. Yeah, well, that's because, you know, there's a logic of inclusion that's being, that's in operation, like, um, where we're saying like, oh, well, we would ask trans folks can participate. They just didn't participate in large numbers, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of just thinking about like, okay, in the same way that Kevin Patterson and loves not colorblind talks about um, black folks in polyamory spaces and sex positive spaces. You can't just start with like, you're welcome here or start with like um, the, the poster children of, of a particular marginalized group, you have to start with you know, accessibility firmly in mind, mm-hmm. like, um, and say, you're not just welcome, but we're designing this study. Um, we're designing this book so that we are starting from, from the trans up or from the queer up or right. from, um, from, with accessibility in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like on some level, Right, like for the research to exist, doesn't there need to be more of a demand for the research from the people who would be using it? Yes. And the insidious thing is that the way that these epistemologies of ignorance operate is that, you know, that they condition the kinds of questions that we ask of mm-hmm. various things. Um, so it limits al- always already limiting our perspective, our, um, our horizons, our imaginations. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't even know to ask the questions or that the questions can be asked. Because mm-hmm. it sounds like some of what you're saying is getting to another point of the book, which I feel like we can kind of go back and back, it, sure. back to this, but is the idea of like, it's like, yeah, how do trans people have sex like cis people? How do you do it the way we do it? Or like that's kind of the question or the assumption is yeah. like how how do you have normal quote unquote sex mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. sex in like the culturally desirable and sus- uh, expected way? Um, and that was one of the like most exciting parts of the book for me to read was about those ideas of like how do we – get rid of this idea that sex is all revolved around coming and all revolved around sexual performance and instead is like each experience is a completely different and new experience Um, every body that you encounter mm -hmm. is a completely new body even if you have a particular experience with a genital configuration or a chest tissue configuration, like that doesn't mean that you're approaching those parts um, with, um, you know, just saying like, well, I I touched a vulva last week, so therefore I know how to touch a vulva this week. Mm -hmm. You know, I know how to touch this vulva here. No, you're going to ask your partner, you know, like, how do you want to be touched? 
Mm -hmm. Um, How do you, um, or how do you not want to be touched? What kinds of intensities, what kinds of energies, feeling tones do you want to have as part of this experience? Mm -hmm. Um, And those are the important questions to be, you know, asking and, and, and approaching um, our bodies, our partner's bodies with a beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. As one um, psychoanalytic theorist, um, Wilfred Bion refers to it, you know, approach somebody without memory or desire. Mm-hmm. What I mean there is that like each time that you are engaging with your body or with the partner's body, that you have to assume that like, yeah, you can remember you can have memories of other things that you can draw on mm-hmm. um like that to, it's not that that just goes away but you have to start from the assumption that um in the same way that like i only see a client a given client like one hour every week and i have to assume that between weeks shit is happening to my clients mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that you know they are basically different um people because of they've gone through transitions because Mm -hmm. of the extra therapeutic stuff that has happened between when we play and so that's the kind of that's the without memory part the without desire part is that you're not foisting a particular vision Mm -hmm. or expectation onto the experience that you're not saying like you know um this is what i expect will happen or I assume will happen Mm -hmm. that instead it's about saying like okay what do we want to happen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah which was like so like I think and I'll speak for myself like I think for a a lot of people that's sounds it's like it maybe hard is a strong word but hard like if you're used because on some level (laughs) well hard and exciting Um, because I think about how like so much of my life and the people, you know, the people I interacted with, there was this pride of like, I'm really good at sex, you know, or I've gotten really good at sex because of all these experiences. But this idea in ways is kind of like throwing that out the window and saying like that you are new at sex every time, like, because you're with a new person. You know, and isn't that exciting? Right, totally. Um, it is. You know, because you're both new. Mm-hmm. You're both, um, you know, like um, on dating apps. Sometimes, you know, people will find out. You know, okay, you're a sex educator, um, and and so they'll be like, oh my god, you must have so much to teach me, and I <laughs> must be, you know, like you must be some kind of sexual rock star, mm-hmm. and I'm like. Well, that's not because of technique or performance. Mm -hmm. It's because if I am a sexual rock star, it is only because of two things. I'm adaptable. And and so, like, I'm going to adapt to the circumstances and the context that, that I'm with, and I'm going to be communicating around that. And two, I am perfectly comfortable swan diving into the awkward. Mm -hmm. Um, because I am already coming into the experience thinking like, you know, sex is messy at its best. Sex is messy Mm -hmm. at its best. Play is messy and kind of chaotic and funny. And, you know, like, 
um, you know, e- even within like a, a DS context, like I'm not, uh, when I'm in a dominant energy, I'm not like this, like really, um, stern top, you know, like I'm, I'm, um, and I'm not humorless. Like mm-hmm. I'm giggling at my best. I'm having a fuck ton of fun and we're laughing and we're, and we're just like figuring one another out mm-hmm. for that moment and just mm-hmm. being present with one another, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. present to our own embodied experiencing and pleasure, um, with our partners embodied experiencing mm-hmm. presence is the big thing. Yeah. And that, and what you just said brought up another point within that, that I thought about when you were talking about, um, you know, being a, taking on a dominating role, they, all these like different roles there sometimes are in sex. Like I've called myself a power bottom for years, you know? And I like, <laughs> and there's this like pride in what that means about how I show up to sexual encounters, you know, mm-hmm. and the way I move my body and the way I do this and all of those things. And so much of while I was reading, it was exciting. And there was also like, oh, I could be doing things kind of like a completely different way than I've done them for many of much of my life in the sense that it's kind of like suggesting to let go a lot of the identity you carry in sex. At least that's how I interpreted some of it. Because if part of that identity shapes the behaviors Mm -hmm. that you're, you're using, doing in sex. I I might tweak that just a tiny bit. I I agree. Mm -hmm. Um, But to perhaps put it in a way that, that may be less scary to to some other, (laughs) uh, to some folks, Um, you know, that it's not like you have to throw the baby out with bathwater. It's that... (laughs) It's that you hold things provisionally. Mm. There's, you know, like from the, like you would a photograph from the edges and lightly as as, um, a great short story by Anam Sufi. um, Undone says, you know, hold me like you would a photograph from the edges and lightly. Mm. And I love that. And I think that identity is, is best held like that as Mm. well. Um, Our, um, our experiencing as as erotic beings is is best held that way, but it requires like being in the unknown and mm-hmm. constantly revisioning and revising one's conception of like what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Where are you know um, what kinds of things do I want to feel during this experience? And, um, you know, because like, I, I love queering things, Mm -hmm. but a lot of queer sex needs to be queered as well, (laughs) you know, because like, you know, like, like a red flag for me, uh, in dating, in dating somebody is, is if they refer to themselves like as gold star lesbian, Mm. like to me, that sounds like super straight to me, um, (laughs) you know, like, um, which is another kind of like fucked up designation to my mind um you know that that um um that is deeply transphobic because the whole notion of gold star mm-hmm. you know assumes that like it's that it's not just i've never had sex with a man mm-hmm. um 
you know, it is that I have never been in contact with uh, a penis mm-hmm. or any any structure that resembles uh, a mm-hmm. penis. Mm-hmm. And that's that's fucking transphobic. Right. Well, I thought it was interesting that you said the gold star saying gold star feels really straight. And I by that, do you mean like normative or conventional, like a conventional kind of lesbian yeah. approach? Yeah, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, like we are. That to me is the opposite of queer sex. Mm hmm. Because it is so much assuming, like, particular genitals, Mm -hmm. genitals behaving and bodies behaving in particular culturally scripted ways. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's almost just as bad as, like, you know, the kind of, like, um, the ways that cultural scripts privilege PIV sex um, Mm -hmm. or or penetrative sex or um, or genital sex in writ large um in the sense that like there's so many other ways to experience bodies you know and that like um i think about for example um my friend and and colleague um sex educator jamie joy talks about various kinds of like oral sex and the ways that we map certain kinds of um, movements on to particular genital configurations. Mm-hmm. So folks with penises, we bob a penis, we give a penis a blowjob. Mm-hmm. And for folks with like vulvas, um, you know, that we, that we, um, that we swirl um, mm-hmm. the vulva, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, first of all, you don't have to use those, um, those terms for your parts. Um, I refer to my parts as my clit. Um, but, um, so, but like, these are biological homologs as Emily Nagoski points out, you know? And so like the glands clitoris and the glands penis are biological homologs. They're the same parts organized differently. Mm-hmm. And so like, who says that you can't, bob a clit who says you can't swirl a penis and if you're bringing that kind of different energy and attention to an experience what opens up Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that makes sense yeah and one of the things that I loved is throughout the book at the end of each chapter you do a bringing theory into practice or I think some of some of the chapters are throughout but the one that feel that I believe was related to this was um, the th- the thing where you, where you talk about giving something like a pen, like an object to yeah. a client and then having them experience that object for the first time. Can you kind of like describe that yeah. for listeners? So um, that's an exercise that I was introduced to via a, a friend who's a surrogate partner therapist and it's called Sensate Mapping. And the way that approach it is that you take an object it's it helpful it's helpful if like you do this in a in pairs so that you have somebody who can kind of witness and what you do is like for the person interacting with an object it's best if they close their eyes and the partner gives them an object Mm -hmm. any object 
it's best if the object can like fit in your lap and you can just, but so it's large enough to fit in your lap, but also small enough that, that it can fit in your lap. <laughs> um, and so like you can move your hands over it or, or, um, you know, manipulate it, put it against your cheeks or sniff it or whatever. Um, you could do whatever you want with this object, lick it for all I care, you know, mm -hmm. bite it. Um, but the, the point is, is that when you're given this object, your first impulse is going to be naming it. Mm -hmm. There's a, a saying in um, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and, and positive psychology called, you know, basically name it to tame it. And sometimes we need to name things in order to, you know, like it, it's important to name things and to tame things to, um, you know, that can be an important stage of trauma processing, of, of really verbalizing what happened, you know. And sometimes naming something, taming something is an act of violence against that thing mm. and or against that person or against that activity, um, against that image, because then you're foisting all of this, what um, a, a cognitive bias called functional fixedness onto the object or the activity or the body part. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly, like, you can only know how to interact with that thing in only one kind of usually culturally prescribed way. So pen, I, you know, if it's like four inches has ink, has an, something that looks like a nib. I take off the cap. I put put the nib to the paper. Ink comes out. Like, I write with it. It's a pen. Mm -hmm. But, like, what if I were to, um, what if I were to use it to, like, you know, as a back scratcher, you know, uh, instead? And just, like, use it to reach that hard-to-reach spot in my back that that, like... God, it's itching, and I just like I could use a back scratch, but no one else is around. So I can, you know, I can do that. You know, so like suddenly the object opens up, and we see this in like sex toys, for example. Like you know, so many toys come with this idea of like that they're used for particular genders, mm -hmm. and they're used for particular um, genitals or certain activities. And, um, you know, again, I say, who says, like, mm -hmm. if you are, if you are really opening up and, um, then, uh, your imagination expanding the horizons, then there's all this possibility for suddenly seeing and using the object in a different way so that, you know, um, some surprising things can happen. So I, I talk about like the off-label uses of our bodies are the off-label uses of, of toys. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's so cool. I've just, I mean, I've always been interested in therapy and psychology, but the ways that therapists can take a lot of these like theoretical, really like, um, I don't know, specific, specific ideas but then make them something that can be kind of embodied and learned through some kind of physical activity mm -hmm. 
Um, so something like the observing a pen is, is a great example of that. Oh, I found a part I was really into. Okay. 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 (laughs) Um, the idea of spontaneous desire versus responsive desire. Uh And, and this is something that happened, I think throughout this chapter where you were like challenging a lot of the, um, traditional kind of approaches to sex Mm -hmm. within the medical, uh, world. Mm -hmm. And part of what you talk about is you talk about, I don't know if I'm pronouncing their name correctly, Klein, Klein Platz. Yeah. Um, yeah. Peggy Klein Platz. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And says, urges us to consider when the goals of treatment, whether via sex, sex therapy or medical intervention are narrowly focused on genital function, sexual performance, and the achievement of orgasm, much of what makes sex pleasurable, such as embodiment, connection, and integration is utterly ignored and missed. The complexities and richness of sexual expression and erotic embodiment are disavowed and evacuated of meaning, which is part of what we were kind of getting into before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you also talk about how there's like this idea that like if a person doesn't like want to fuck everyone they see, like who's attractive to them, like on the street, then they must have like a problem. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um. And so, yeah, can you can you define spontaneous versus responsive desire? Sure, sure. Um, and by the way, if you're looking for like a more uh, complete treatment of uh, discussion of, of spontaneous and responsive desire, I would um, look at uh, Emily Nagoski's wonderful book, Come As You Are. So the way that this, uh, the way that we can think of spontaneous versus responsive desire is that the normal, the the way that classical sexology has taught us to conceptualize desire, going back to like Freud and, and is drive theory. It's the idea that like sex is a drive and that you're, we are pushed towards, um, towards an interest in sex, push towards sex. And so we often talk about like libido, low libido, high libido, all these things. And like both like low libido and high libido are typically quite pathologized within certain sectors of mm-hmm. um, sexual medicine. So um, low desire, um, you know, up until the DSM-5, which is the current edition, there was like a hypoactive, you know, um, uh, desire disorder. And it was, it was specifically for cis women, you know, who experienced, you know, who, who didn't have the kinds of desire profile that like, um, cis men did. I mean, you know, it's, and, and it's deeply pathologizing, particularly of folks who are like, gray ace and demisexual Mm -hmm. and you know who like yeah like maybe aren't interested in sex at all or um or are interested only in very particular narrow um contexts and so shifting from a libido or drive model to a one of desire templates spontaneous versus responsive it not only as Nagoski 
points out, explodes a central facet of rape culture, which is the idea that like, you, well, he's got to have it kind of thing. Like, I, you know, I've got to have sex or I will die, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Or like, you know, that's just bullshit. Um, <laughs> no one, no one has suffered tissue damage or death because uh, they haven't had sex. It may be uncomfortable, you may not like that, mm-hmm. but no one has died because of it. Um, or um, in the same way that like water, um, hydration is a drive, you know? Like if we do not have enough water, we get we experience tissue damage and we die. Um, and so spontaneous desire is um, a desire template that is often the one that's kind of culturally privileged, particularly in um, in Hollywood um, representations of eroticism. Mm-hmm. So it's like the kind of like, I see you across the room, you see me across the room, our eyes meet, we maybe start talking a little bit, and suddenly, you know, like five minutes later, we're in the club bathroom fucking, <laughs> you know, um, you know, slammed against like um, um, the, the example that I always give is like, you know, just like fucking on the stairs, which, you know, been there, done that, have the back problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, so that's what's privileged. Mm-hmm. And typically, um, you know, the, the research on this indicates that cis men typically will experience, uh, are more likely in some some cases to experience spontaneous desire than cis women. Mm-hmm. Um, as the use of cis here should indicate that there has been no extension of this research to trans folks. So mm-hmm. this is all extrapolation. So responsive desire is this idea that... Um, that our desire is responsive to context. Context is both like what is going on in our external environment and what is going on internally. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, am I feeling stressed out? Um, Do I find my partner attractive? Um, Do I, um, you know, these kinds of things. Am I in a place that... um, that I, that's comfortable for me, you know, Mm -hmm. are we in a bedroom? Are we, you know, or are we in a forest clearing that's really hot and we're doing like a fun primal scene? Um, you know, so like whatever those contexts are that are turn ons, um, you know, that our, that desire is responsive to those. And it turns out that spontaneous desire nearly feels spontaneous and organic. Mm. It's like most of my clients will um, come to me, you know, specifically like um, my relationship therapy clients, you know, will come saying like, we want sex to be more spontaneous or more organic. And that's often what they mean by that. You know, that they, that they wish that spontaneous desire were a thing. Mm-hmm. It turns out that spontaneous desire, it just means that the gap between the context, the the relevant context, and the the experience of desire is perhaps more abbreviated, but we're still always responsive to context. Right. You know, for example, 
maybe I have to be attracted to the person that I'm, you know, um, that I'm seeing. That's a context. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, or we're doing a kind of um, sex that feels really good to me. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other, the other part that is talked about, and I think it's near that area, is some of the assumptions that are placed on trans people who have gone undergone some kind of medical inter- intervention, like the idea that yeah. trans men, it's assumed they're going to be really, really have a lot of um, high sex drive and want to be yeah. having sex all the time. Trans women are going to have a huge like dip in their libido and are mm-hmm. going to be depressed and not want to have sex. Yeah, yeah. Like I was in my doctor's office today getting an STI panel and there was a there was a notice about like, masculinizing hormones and feminizing hormones and what the effects are and the kind of timetables. And of course, to my horror, Mm -hmm. um, especially on the feminizing hormones piece, which is say estrogen, progesterone, spironolactone, um, there was a notice that said that folks who take estrogen may note a drop in libido. Uh, a drop mm-hmm. in their sex drive. Mm-hmm. And what I'm always keyed to is like the language we use brings forth realities. Yeah, and totally. So if like if we are saying like, well, this is a possibility, then we're putting a client in the position of feeling like I have to choose between being gender euphoric, being in my body, resolving gender dysphoria, um, and having a sex life that's familiar to me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, to one. And that's a false dichotomy. That's binary thinking. Mm-hmm. Let's throw that the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, it's all about the context, you know? And mm-hmm. so maybe it's like, to get back to responsive and spontaneous, maybe it's that there's a shift from more of a like spontaneous dominant um, template to more of a responsive or vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean that you're broken. It just means that you are approaching desire differently, that the contexts may have shifted that promote desire. Mm-hmm. That, um, and so like, that's what has to be attended to. And and so when you are doing that and you make that shift, then you're no longer like putting somebody in the in the place of saying like, well, you're going to lose something. Right. Whether it's like you're going to lose control, you're going to be like a sex beast or <laughs> you're going to um or you're going to lose desire. Mm-hmm. And a funny thing happens on the way to the forum um, that that when we, as we feel more gender good, to use a term um, that um, River Queer on Instagram mm. um, has promoted, that when we feel more gender good in our bodies or gender euphoric, the more that we feel affirmed. It turns out that that is a desire-promoting context. Mm-hmm. And so, like, estrogen, testosterone, these are not... Yes, they, they, they could do um, a lot of really cool things to our physiology. 
but they're not these like magic bullets that that you know that like change everything right like um and they don't like testosterone in particular is invested with so much significance and power mm-hmm. and it like it, it's like um a friend of mine you know when i was kind of worrying about like my estrogen levels and my testosterone levels um when i first started taking um hormones um you know she was like you know in fact like there's no we give this range but it's kind of bullshit mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. like like what is it to have a normal range of estrogen mm-hmm. because like i mean as we move through life that that kind of normal range fluctuates mm-hmm. and so like normal range at what point in um in one's life at what point of the month at what point of the day um you know so like the hormones aren't everything mm-hmm. and um and so like i want to promote that like what is at issue here is like what are the things that turn you on what are the things that make you feel gender good mm-hmm. what are the things that make you feel sexy and to promote those and and then at that point like suddenly pleasure is a whole lot more attainable yeah yeah well and it and please correct me if i'm wrong but it feels like a lot of the thesis a lot of what you're saying throughout the book is that it's a lot more individual than the medical industry gives credit to like Uh, yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) like uh you know uh, a high amount of estrogen for me is going to be different than Mm -hmm. than for someone else and Mm -hmm. you know like a lot of a lot of stock is being made about like testosterone levels amongst um athletes and, you know, particularly in um, a spate of laws that are meant to target um, trans women in sports mm-hmm. and um, keep them out of, of sports. And, um, you know, because testosterone is then placed at the center of this argument, whereas, like, there's no, there's normal range. Like, mm-hmm. we each have different we each have different ranges and, and our physiologies are different. And I know this because like estrogen, the same amount of estrogen is going to do different things to my body. Mm-hmm. Um, even slightly different things, sometimes massively different things to my body than it will to another person's body. Mm-hmm. Even the same amount because our physiologies are different. Right, right, right. And then that also then goes for the ways people experience desire are going to be individual, you know, and the kind of sex people want to have and all of these Mm -hmm. things. And to say that all people who are like this, who have this kind of body, who, you know, are this size and all these things, they're all going to like this kind of sex. It takes, it takes, yeah, it's, you know, doesn't make, it doesn't make sense, but that, okay. So then part of what we were talking about makes me want to go toward um, this part of what you were, um, part of advice you were giving to therapists, it was around when you were talking about, you shared the idea of like the use of the word fascinating or interesting and these words <laughs> that can make um, people feel like eroticized or objectified for their experiences. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how 
there's an example of like someone who a non-binary person who starts seeing a therapist who's having like who's kind of who's depressed at college they're like a new college student and all mm-hmm. the therapist wants to do is talk about their gender when that's like not the reason the person wants to be there and something that i've I've thought about kind of a lot because I've been in therapy for 15 years. I sometimes feel like there's this tension between, um, you know, don't treat like you don't need to treat clients differently in any way who are queer, like people are people. And then this other thing where it's like um, you should have a knowledge of those things, et cetera, et cetera. And like I had like I had a therapist who was like, I don't know, people are people like it's no different than you know, it's no different than giving therapy to a straight person. And for me, I was like, I kind of disagree, you know, because I think I have a lot of like, <laughs> like, you know, like I've dated, I've only dated non-conforming, gender non-conforming people. Like these are, you know, right? Like my experience is going to be different, etc. But then there's also like this, like, okay, but we don't want to like tokenize or like assume my experience is this specific way because I'm queer. And I'm wondering, like, how does one resolve that? Or, like, what is the balance there? You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it is a balance. So, mm-hmm. first of all, it's it's the idea that, like, the individual is not the community. So, like, there's mm-hmm. no such thing as, like, the trans experience, um you know like um like we use these umbrella terms in as shorthand but in truth like it 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 does tend to override individual identification and it helps us organize it helps us form communities and all these things but it, it does tend to then promote a situation where like we're not considering the other facets of one's identity constellation and how those are interacting Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. what i say to like therapists is like it's never a client's job to explain teach you Mm -hmm. any particular facet about any particular facet of their identity constellation like like google it do the work do you know pursue supervision or consultation or training experience so that you're not making like a, uh, a trans client, you know, um, like speak for like the trans experience. Mm-hmm. Um, what you can talk to someone about is like, okay, how do various facets interact with one another? Mm-hmm. Like um, one of the passages that I really loved um, because it was just so like on the nose, great in the novel Detransition Baby. I'm a big fan of Detransition Baby. <laughs> um, w- was you know this place where the um, the Reese character, I, mm-hmm. I believe, you know, talks about how like so often when when she talks about trans women and and trans a trans woman's experience that. the assumption is always whiteness Mm -hmm. there, you know, and that, you know, so we often then add like um, black trans women or, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so like, um, I I really loved 
that that observation and i think it's something we need to think about and that's that's the way to say like you know like it is important for me to know like how is it that like my judaism interacts with my queerness for mm-hmm. example that might be something that i can't get from another training i can mm-hmm. only get it from the client mm-hmm. but it, it has to be approached from a place of ethical curiosity mm-hmm. and not from a place of like I'm titillated by this or mm-hmm. I feel like someone else needs to know some like, you know, um, like an insurance company or WPATH, uh, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, or like it has to be on a letter or something like that. Um, like, no, it's it's so that this is so that we can understand how identity is integral to to what we're doing in therapy, like, mm-hmm. you know, and that it has to be brought into the room in the same way that eroticism does, you know, mm-hmm. and when we don't, and we, when we as providers shy away from sex and from identity, it telegraphs to our clients that, um, that we're not comfortable and therefore they might not, they shouldn't be comfortable mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're talking about with that vignette is also like this thing that I think happens a lot where like take kinky clients, for example, like I, my practice is steeped in kink knowledgeable therapy. And so if I have a kinky client, I don't assume that they're coming to me to talk Mm -hmm. about their kinks. Mm -hmm. I'm, I am, it may come up, but like, they're probably coming to me because I'm kink knowledgeable. Um, and so like, I'm not going to, you know, try to make the session about their kinks. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. they want to talk about depression or anxiety, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or maybe if they want to talk about kink, they want to talk about like their relationship agreements or their DS dynamics or something that happened in scene, or they want to explore and discharge, some sexual shame but like it's not about like like I I had a therapist once I said very specifically you know like I don't want I'm going to talk about the fact that I'm kinky Mm -hmm. but I don't want to like explore like how I became kinky Mm -hmm. or like Mm -hmm. you know if there's like some um antecedent in my in my childhood that you know makes Mm -hmm. the old kind of psychoanalytic um approach and sure enough at a certain point she you know when I started talking about how I love receiving and giving marks during play um that 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 was like really you could see the kind of like eyes lighting up and it was like no like now she's leaning forward in her chair Mm -hmm. it's now it's now about that. It's now about the fact that like, ooh, that's so interesting and fun that mm-hmm. they like to, mm-hmm. like, what's that about? And it's like, no, I'm still talking about depression here. Mm-hmm. I'm still talking about the fact that I'm lonely. Mm-hmm. I'm still talking about these other things. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to examine um, why I like giving and receiving marks. Yeah. Well, in that example also then like it feels related to this idea for some therapists that it's like the, their job is to figure something out. 
like to yeah. figure out what's wrong or like what yeah to like to pathologize rather than to help a client learn to cope and you know make different choices or accomplish some goal that they have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah no it's our job is not to figure things out or mm-hmm. to be um an expert sometimes you know it's it's important it's clinically useful to bring curiosity to a dynamic um however um you know it just has to be approached with care mm-hmm. so our job is to hold things mm-hmm. it's to it's to hold a container it's to help a client feel seen and mm-hmm. held in their experiencing it's to um imagine into the radical possibilities of their being mm-hmm. and of the relationship and it's uh you know it can be about like you know that we are having an experience together you know um, an emotionally transformative experience an imaginally transformative experience mm-hmm. and um and and so like I want to get it away from this idea that like we have to be doing something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or we're not doing anything um you know I think that I think especially like during the pandemic I have recognized the limits of what I can do mm. because I'm doing everything via telehealth and like we're all in it. I'm not okay. My clients aren't okay. Mm-hmm. No one's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and, and we're, because we're all in this collective trauma soup together. Mm-hmm. And so like, I can't pretend that I'm somehow above that. Yeah. Like, even if I wanted to, like, it's my job to name, like, you know, you're not fucked up or broken. The entire white cis hetero patriarchy is what is fucked up and broken. Mm-hmm. Like, and what it's doing is that it's acting on you so that it makes you think that you're the problem because you've internalized this, this bullshit. Over time, somebody else's story about you has become the story that you think about yourself. Like it's when a client says something like, well, well, I'm just, I'm just this way. And it's like, who mm. says, mm. Mm-hmm. who says, who should is that? Whose ought is that? Mm-hmm. You know, whose story is, is being told about you. And, you know, maybe that's a story you want to tell. Maybe that's a story that serves you. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times we're coming to therapy because it's a story that doesn't serve us that we see that we're seeing like a discomfort with that story because it keeps getting hung on us and that's an act of violence. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's, there's that sense of like, like a dominant culture is trying to use me as a tool of my own erasure. Mm. And, um, and I don't want to stand for that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, the, the business of therapy in that context is, like, exploding the cracks and saying, like, what stories, what images, what metaphors, what 
conceptualizations of pleasure and sex and gender and bodies and embodiment are are yours what what traditions do you want to take it from um mm -hmm. take them from what um what are available to you um what do you want to create that is something completely new and different because of the intersections of your identity constellation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well we're a little over an hour i thought we could kind of take it to like where we started, which was desirability. And something that I thought about when we were talking about that was, and I can be kind of, a, I'm definitely wet blanket about social media, but I'm wondering, are you as a therapist who's been working with trans clients for years, do you see a shift because there are platforms where people are able to like, like position themselves as desirable does that shift the way people see themselves in the real world in relationships again everything is individual but have you noticed something there can you say a little bit more about that yeah i guess because um so part of what we were talking about with desirability versus desire ability part of the desire ability comes from social norms and like what is what the culture has decided is desirable and what the culture has also decided is not desirable. And you bring up different media representations of trans people in that section. And I'm wondering with people, I've heard some, I don't know, different like sexologists or like relationship internet experts talk about this idea that like with with social media, where we get to create the way that we're portrayed to other people if we want to create a sexual desirable person, we can do that. And sometimes my thought about that is, yes, but that doesn't change what happens offline or that doesn't change what happens when you're walking around. And I guess I'm just, but I'm just curious if you see that that's been a way that um, increases people's confidence if they're like taking ownership and creating their own story. Well, Here's where I think things change. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think about the latest season of Sex Education. Mm -hmm. And um, when one of the characters goes to Jean Milburn, Gillian uh, Anderson's character, uh, who's a sex therapist, and, um, and she starts talking about her, um, her vulva and, and how, like, she's always thought that her vulva was you know misshapen or broken mm. you know and so um dr milburn um gives her you know like a site that says you know like here are all these um pictures of different vulvas go to town you mm. know and and so like i think where social media can be very powerful and connecting is in that sense of like, I can see all sorts of bodies. I can mm. see like that there's more choices out there. The problem is, of course, like um, laws like FOSTA-SESTA um, in the United States um, that designed for sex traffic, uh, to combat sex trafficking. It doesn't actually do any of that. Instead, what it's done is that it's forced, um, that it's made a lot of forms of sex work more precarious. 
And it's also had social media providers and other internet service providers changing their terms of use and their community standards provisions. So what that means is that the full range of beautiful bodies that we're, that we're looking to see in the world and that we're looking to curate in the world are getting taken down. Mm. And, you know, mm. like, it's not... Um, and I can promise you that, like... And, and by the way, like, Instagram has made its money off of um off of queer bodies mm-hmm. and and cis women's bodies you know and so to come around and you know like white thin cis women who are able bodied um and you know um and are strangely all living and tanned and in their 20s, you know, and surprisingly somehow all living in Bali (laughs) with their boyfriend and driving on scooters, you know, their shit, they're never being taken down, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's like, who's, who's, who's getting content taken down? Trans folks, queer folks, Mm -hmm. fat folks, black folks, um, you know, any kind of, um, you know, desirability and, and desirability are coming into play in the algorithm mm-hmm. and in the ways that the algorithms are being enforced to shadow ban or to outright ban and delete people. So, um, so yes and no. Mm-hmm. Like, like I have seen, like there's, there's pockets of Reddit, for example, there's this one part of Reddit where like you upload a picture of yourself and a bunch of strangers then tell you whether you're passing that day. Whoa. And, and that is, uh, I mean, you know, fucking intense. And it's like, why do you care mm-hmm. what, like, these strangers on the internet have to right. say? Like, why do they have more testimonial importance mm-hmm. than somebody who's close to you? You know, mm-hmm. why do you trust them and you don't trust your, like, mm-hmm. good friend? You know, mm-hmm. so it's tough. So social media like has been incredibly connecting for me and for a lot of queer folks and um and kinky folks and trans folks during the during the pandemic mm-hmm. especially. Like that's how we've maintained community, mm-hmm. grown community and like online workshops, you know, I can now attend a workshop in LA and that's great. You know, like before I had to fly out and spend a shit ton of money to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but like now I can do all sorts of things. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's that, but at the same time, there's the algorithm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Thank you. (laughs) Um, yeah. Well, I think we can wrap it up there. Do you want to tell people where they can find you? And is and I, I want to give you a chance if there's anything you really wanted to say that you didn't that didn't come up. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, one thing that I always want to drive home is that you know, hindsight is 2020 and um I the subtitle of the book is Clinical Approaches to Transsexualities and Erotic Embodiments. And so that word clinical can be pretty off-putting. But, like, it is not, at the end of the day, 
it is not for mental health and medical providers. You Mm -hmm. know, it's not for clinicians. It is for us. It is Mm -hmm. hopefully so that like maybe providers are a little bit less shitty. It's also for other providers, um, you know, who aren't always in the room when we're talking about gender Mm -hmm. um, affirming care, you know, like, um, you know, like, uh, sexological body workers, somatic therapists, um, uh, dance and movement folks, uh, sex workers, you know, like they all belong in the conversation. Ancestral he- folks who come from ancestral healing traditions, mm-hmm. um, you know, where some folks are going to be more likely to visit somebody who who draws from a specific ancestral healing tradition that is shared with their patient than they are sometimes from a medical or a mental health provider. Why do we assume that the Western white cishet model is the one that we're going to do? Mm-hmm. The other thing is like, like, yes, it's transsex. And yes, I meant this to be built from the trans up, from the queer up, that, that it starts from our bodies instead of cis bodies, mm-hmm. cis het bodies in particular. But like I think that there's a lot that cis folks um have to learn about their bodies. There's so many things that cis folks mm-hmm. can learn about their bodies. And so like I almost want like um I I'm just proposing a workshop in fact for for a conference that's like um transsex for cis bodies Mm, you know i love that i love that because like um (laughs) um cis men with penises need to know about muffing muffing Mm. is a is Mm -hmm. is a thing that um is something that uh it's a term that was coined by mira bellwether described at length and in her great zine uh fucking trans women um you know but like anyone with testicles can be muffed. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, and there's so much potential that opens up for cis folks, for trans folks, all bodies, when we approach things from this lens of like, we're starting without memory or desire. Mm-hmm. We're starting from a place of, I don't know what this is. And I am going to be approaching my body, my partner's bodies from a beginner's mind and Mm -hmm. with a curiosity that opens onto the radical imaginal possibilities of our eroticism and our bodies and our relationships. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful way to close it. (laughs) That's awesome. I, I, uh, I read like three or four different um, books on Buddhism and mindfulness over the summer. So a lot of reading this too in the beginner's mind had me thinking about a lot of that. Um, Really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. And uh, in order to find me, um, I'm on Instagram and um, at Lucy Fielding website, um, uh, Twitter, all the things. Um, I'm very slow to respond on DMs and please don't engage me in like clinical stuff. You can also buy um, transsex um, at any um, 
book retailer. Um, if your local bookstore isn't carrying it and buy local, um, have them carry it, have them order mm-hmm. it, please, please. I would love to see it on more shelves. <laughs> Um, and not just like, um, on the bigger online retailers. So yeah, um, that's awesome. Yeah. And being a publisher, that's really huge for readers to tell their bookstores, Oh, can I get this? Can you carry this? Um, because the more, then they see the demand and then the more often more and more bookstores start ordering the books. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. So, um, thank you. so very much for inviting me for engaging me in this rich conversation and um yeah anytime yeah yeah thank you yeah Okay. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm so, so, so excited to be here with you again. Um, I want to thank Samantha Grace for doing the theme song for this podcast. And I also want to thank Coley Pizzoli for doing the sound editing for this podcast. Thanks, Coley. Um, I want to thank myself for being here. Uh, I also want to thank Lucy Fielding. Without her, we would not have had a show today. Thank you for writing Trans Sex and talking with me on the show. I also want to thank you, you dear listener, for listening to the show. Please rate, subscribe. Is that it? Yeah, subscribe. Tell your friends. <laughs> um, and I will see you next time. Bye. Let's talk it out now.